Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison, and today's podcast was recorded on 22nd of September at around 11am. As always, if you want any further information about what we do here in the centre or about upcoming podcasts, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C and follow us on Twitter, at T-E-R-C-U-E-L. Remember, if you've got a book proposal that you'd like to send in for our book series with IB Taurus, uh, to check out that website and get all details about that there. So you haven't come here to listen to me talking about the Centre of Opportunities here. You've come to listen to our great guests today. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest, Professor Neil Ferguson, a professor of political psychology at Liverpool Hope University and a visiting research fellow to the Changing Character of War programme at Pembroke College, Oxford. His research is focused on political conflict and its psychological implications since he studied towards his PhD at the University of Ulster. His research focuses on process of engagement, involvement and disengagement from politically motivated violence, focusing on paramilitary groups based in Northern Ireland. And it, he has published in psychological and politics journals, contributed to a number of edited volumes and offered a crit critical advice to various government security agencies and NGOs on issues relating to radicalization, terrorism, and counterterrorism. Neil, thanks so much for, for being with us today. Thanks very much, John, for the kind words and for having me on. No problem, no problem. How did you get involved in this area of research? Um, well, I think, as you can hear from my accent, John, <laughs> I'm from Northern Ireland. I never knew uh, that. You never knew that. <laughs> so I, I, I was really, I was born in 1970, so I was a child of the Troubles. Um, I was also unfortunate or fortunate, whatever way you're looking at it, to be born in an area that was, you know, no stranger to political conflict and political violence. And uh, really, a lot of my memories, even from my very first early memories, are related to the conflict that was going on within the country at the time. Um, but I guess, in terms of getting involved with the research, was really, I had, in a way, the lucky sort of opportunity, whenever I went to the University of Ulster, to work with Ed Kearns. He was a professor there in psychology, and uh, he had been studying the impact of the conflict, particularly the impact of the conflict on, on children and child development, social identity processes, and things like that. And he'd been doing that for a long time, since the, the 1970s. Um, so it was really just a chance to sort of talk to him, go to his classes as an undergraduate, study the conflict, and try to understand the conflict in, in a different way, I guess, from what I've seen on the street. So try to understand the process behind where we had these partisan opinions of each other and you know, attribution biases and, and things like that. So it was really, really good to work with him. And then I, I guess for my undergraduate <coughs> dissertation, <coughs> I approached him to see if he would be my supervisor. So he said, well, come and have a chat to me in the office and we'll see you know, whether or not you're up to the task. So really what he wanted to know was whether or not I kind of understood the conflict in Northern Ireland, do you know what I mean? So he said, could I ask you a few questions? And the first question he said, well, where are you from? And I said, put it down. And he said, I don't need to ask any more questions. <laughs> so <laughs> he was kind of happy by that fact that it been some sort of idea of what was going on in the streets and something to do with understand, you know, how the conflict might impact on people. Yeah. Um, so I guess the first research, or the early research I did, really began to look at children and try to look at the impact the conflict and the political violence was having on children, and particularly things around how they coped 
with the stress of the, of the conflict. So what kind of mechanisms, psychological mechanisms, processes people put in place to try to defend themselves from the stresses and strains? So things like you know, using denial or habituation and things like that. And also looking at how it impacts on child development more generally. So initially, that, that's really where I started. And I guess how I got toward, into more to do with work on terrorism and paramilitaries was um, over the ceasefires and the sort of fledging political process, I began to do a lot of research to look at the impact that these events were having on people. You know, how did the ceasefires and how did it moves towards conflict management and a, and a new peaceful way of dealing with conflict in Northern Ireland? How did that impact on child and adolescent reasoning? And also how children and adolescents' conceptions of what peace was developed over that period in time. Um, oh, one of the things we really noticed was how the, these big, I guess, societal changes were having a very, very big impact on children and adolescents' views of conflict and views of sort of the mutual nature of conflict and changing their ideas about, you know, from really seeing the conflict as them attacking us into much more mutual sort of idea and they talk about things like decommissioning because these are the these are things that are being talked about by politicians and by people who were involved in the peace process. So I began to think, well, rather than talking to children and adolescents who have been impacted on by the conflict and by the peace process, maybe what I should do is change track and begin to talk to people who are um, designing what peace in Northern Ireland is going to look like. So we began to look at people who had more involvement in the peace process, people who were involved in politics, people who were involved in community leadership, and also people in who were involved in, in the violence or had been involved in the violence, because I thought these are the people who are going to mould uh, peace in Northern Ireland and sort of shape peace in Northern Ireland for the future for these young people. So that's really how I started beginning to get involved in um, a move away, I guess, from more quantitative experimental work into this kind of qualitative approach where I was interviewing uh, paramilitaries, interviewing ex-combatants, interviewing ex-prisoners, uh, and trying to understand their understanding of the conflict in Northern Ireland, what was going on, and how they sort of felt things could develop in the future, and how Northern Ireland could change through the peace process as well. So I think that's really how I began to get involved in, that kind of, in this kind of research. And um, when you had that shift then from that focus on children of conflict and the way the conflict affected them to going and talking to these people who would be shaping the future or involved in the, the negotiations. Did it seem that they had a focus uh, on the children or was it more, uh, was it more about the intractable nature of the conflict in their eyes or the nature of the conflict? Yeah, I think it was two, the two, two things that really shaped me was there was a change in this idea that the conflict was intractable. So a lot of the work I had done up until really the ceasefires was people just could not see how the conflict would end. Okay? And the only people I spoke to who could see an end to the conflict had been some of the politicians that um, you know, could see that it was going to end, but the general population just didn't see that. So there was a kind of a change in this kind of understanding that the conflict wasn't intractable and we could have a mutual shared future in some format. So that was, that was a view that was widespread. And also, the big driver, I think, for the, the, the players in the conflict, the politicians and the, the community activists and, and the former uh, paramilitaries or the former prisoners was really the children as well. The idea that they didn't want the children to have to redo what they did. They didn't want another generation to have to go out and fight the conflict again and suffer um, the consequences of that. So. 
Uh, I mean, if you look at our research that people like Pete Sherlow and others have done, you can see the how damaged and the way the, the axe combatant population is in terms of anxiety, depression, financial problems, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that they've sort of seen how the way they have been harmed. Other people have died. The society have been harmed as, and didn't really want to have other young people go through that process again. And when you've, so you've obviously grown up uh, during a period of conflict, during a period um, of extreme violence in Northern Ireland. Uh, you've gone into academia, you've started this research, um, looking at children, then going to meet with, uh, with these uh, paramilitaries and former paramilitaries. How did you find that what was being written about in academia did you feel that it it was fitting what was actually taking place, or did you feel that it was it was missing something? Well, I think if you go back to, I mean, you know, links in, I think, some of the papers that have that have uh, that influenced me. You know, particularly you look at the work of Andrew Silk, and you know, there was this kind of idea that these people were in some way psychopathic. Uh, that, you know, there's some sort of psychological problems there. You know, normal people, good people, wouldn't do these abnormal acts. But obviously, from the research that I've done, was really that understand that you know the people, the people who are involved in this activity are you know let's call them normal. That's not a great term, but there were unexceptional people who were doing very abnormal activity because of the very exceptional or abnormal situation that they happened to be in. Mm -hmm. And I mean that kind of fitted you know, my own experiences growing up for people who would have perhaps gone off to join different military or paramilitary organisations. You know, there were not people who were doing this for internal psychological reasons as such, but they were doing it because of reactions to what was taking place in the environment around them. Mm. And like so you're talking about about the work of, of Andrew of Andrew Silk and you you had highlighted in, in when I asked you for the pieces that influenced you, you highlighted this piece Cheshire Cat Logic, which is challenging um, this notion that they're all psychopathic and it's, yeah. it's, it's uh, about this terrorist abnormality. You also uh, point out the work of Jeff Victoroff as well in the yeah. mind of the terrorist and you can see that I can see that fitting in with the way that you 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 think about this as well the way you've observed it and in your your current and uh, your current writings that we'll be dealing with later what was it that Victoroff was saying that really uh, hit home with you? Well I think for me the Victoroff's review and critique was really it was so expansive you know and it took in such a range of different activities and, and you know pulling all the research together mm -hmm. I mean I was very familiar with the research we had looked at in terms of political conflict, but you know, not so much in terms of the, the kind of you know terrorism, if you want to use that term. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really how you sort of pulled everything together, and then again, really having a good exploration of these kind of factors and understand that you know these personality factors, you know, it really needed a much more multi-level analysis, a much deeper way, com com sort of a much more complex approach to try to understand it. And I kind of felt that it really reflected what I was seeing in terms of the, the interviews I conducted and, uh, you know, from, from being in Northern Ireland as well, that we needed this much wider kind of range of um, issues to think about, mm -hmm. a lot more complexity to think about than what we had done in the past. Yeah. And I think one of the things as well, I, I would agree with Andrew in, in terms of his work with the Cheshire Cat logic, is really, to some degree, I think, these kind of views of people as being, as a, I guess, a psychopath or having personality disorders, whatever, it's really just an attribution by us. By us, it's a kind of a comfort blanket that we have, that we put in place to try to say, well, look at these bad men. 
look at the terrible things they're doing. We could never do that. First, there must be something wrong with them. Yeah. You know, it's an escape mechanism for us to kind of, you know, buffer us away from, from the things that we don't like. Yeah, and it's also an escape mechanism if we're looking to, to deal with it and counter it, say, yeah. well, if it's something to do with the individual, that's, there's nothing we can do, that's, that's, yeah. up, that's them, that's their abnormality, it's their psychopathy or whatever. It, uh, yeah, you can, you can wash your hands of things if you use that, that sort of logic, all right. And the, the other piece that you, that you focused on was um, Jerry, Jerry Post's piece with, um, with Sprinzak and Denny, um, and it's the terrorists in their own words, interviews with 35 incarcerated Middle Eastern terrorists. Was it the methodology here? Because you're known for, for your first-hand yeah. interview data collection. What, was, was it that methodology, or was it something else you're drawing from? Yeah, that's it. It was methodology, because I think when I, I really started to kind of move in towards qualitative work when I first started to work with Mark Burgess, who's now a reader at uh, Oxford Brooks, but at the time worked here. And we were working with one of our sort of first-class undergraduates, uh, a guy called Ian Hollywood. And we were working together. We, uh, we sort of made this move into the qualitative work. And we got a little grant from the university to go out and look at, as I said, looking at people who had been players and been involved in the conflict, so people who were politicians and uh, former combatants or things like that. We wanted to try to understand how they viewed their conceptualization of peace in Northern Ireland. Um, so we had started doing that little bit of work with the qualitative work. Um, and then from that, we, we had had a lot of interesting interviews with former combatants from Republican and, and Loyalist background. And then we decided to sort of delve more deeply uh, in, into that work. So I guess Jeff's paper was published about 2003. <laughs> so I guess by 2002, 2003 was when we began to focus more on trying to understand the reasons people gave for their engagement in political protest. So we initially we began by looking at people who had been involved in both peaceful and violent political protests. We looked at people who had, you know, for example, become advocates for victims or had, uh, you know, got involved in civil rights demonstrations or politics. Um, and then we also looked at people who had joined a variety of armed groups in Northern Ireland. So we had sort of began to look at that work um, and trying to understand I, mean, I guess Mark comes from from more of a, a personality factor. He wanted to see what you know, what made these people stand up as such as, as personality level factors, whereas I was coming from from much more the impact of the community, social context, you know, identity factors. So we sort of came together and began to look at the combatants from that. So really, the, the, the that paper post, um, which our post was really it was allowed us to kind of see the methodology to understand that uh, you know this work was already out there and gives the kind of way to think about how to package it and and it, it really some of some of the the finds really resonated and um, with what we were seeing as well in our research so it kind of was interesting to see that this work taking place in the middle east mm -hmm. um and the work we're doing and and particularly the samples from middle east and belfast and Derry and places like that i'm finding very similar kind of processes uh, involved in how people uh, narrate and explain how they got involved in in political violence mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that was the key thing, I think, for us was really kind of that methodology and seeing someone else doing very, something very similar at the time. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that it's similar themes resonating from, from Belfast to the Middle East as well. And they, it, it sort of shows that even though some, some people might feel, well, 
Northern yeah. Ireland is in the past. There's, uh, we shouldn't be looking at, we should be moving on. That there is a lot that we can learn from this as well, from, from what we've seen in Northern Ireland and, and elsewhere as well. But I want to stick on this issue of interviewing for the moment. What kind of reaction did you get initially and do you still get when you're approaching people and uh, former and current paramilitaries and saying, uh, I want to interview about your time there and I'm from the School of Psychology as well? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th I think it has changed over time. I think whenever I started doing this, you know, sort of around the millennium, um, just after the peace process, it was a very different space. So if you think during the conflict, you know, it was almost impossible to do this. Like it was much more difficult to do this where mm. people were very closed. And then after the peace, uh, the agreements in, two, in 1998, and the prisoner releases and things, there was kind of a, a feeling that people had served their time. Um, they could move into a future... And what was done was done, and they would kind of be left alone, as we, we know that uh, isn't necessarily the case. So people think we're more free to talk. Plus, in terms, I mean, I'm from Portadown, but um, I was able to travel places and go into communities and interview people in their living room and places that I would never have dreamed of going to, yeah. you know, five or ten years earlier. This wouldn't have been a very safe thing to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, so in a way, it, it was a very, it was a, different environment, an environment that allowed me to kind of move in different places and go places in, in a much more safe space. Interview people who felt comfortable talking to you because they, they felt that, you know, the war was kind of over and, uh, you know, they felt sort of safe to, to discuss these kind of issues. Yeah. Um, but, you know, times have changed and I think the environment in terms of going back to do interviews now has, has changed um, and it's probably more tricky, but, you know, obviously because of things like you know the, the boston college tapes yeah and things like that so i think and well when i reflect back i think why didn't i do more field work at that time because you know there it was such a, a good space to kind of go out and collect collect that data yeah and like have you had it mentioned to you like about Boston College in the past few years? Have people said, no, I'm, I would have talked to you before, but with everything that happened with Boston College, or is it just you sense that that's the reason? I think it's, people are very much more, it depends what you want to talk to people about now, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm, I, more recent interviews that I'm working on uh, is kind of looking at people's future. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do people get involved in community uh, conflict transformation? How do people move towards uh, disarmament, disengagement? How do people, you know, move to make a better future for Northern Ireland and their own communities? Mm -hmm. So, I, I think when you're looking at that, that's a positive thing. But I think to go back now, when, if I attempted to try to talk to people about their past, mm -hmm. I think people are a lot more worried because of things like in historical investigations and things yeah. like that. Just um, for our listeners who don't know what the Boston College Affair uh, case is, could you just give a brief description to them of what happened there? Uh, and well, put it briefly, uh, Boston College did a an oral history project and in that oral history project they hired some local uh, people to conduct interviews with republicans and loyalists about their stories of the troubles um on the proviso that the interviews wouldn't be released until after their death um unfortunately the i guess the psni challenged that and were able to go to boston college and legally get their hands on those tapes mm -hmm. and then after that a number of people were taken in for questioning about things that were said on the interviews um, so it made people a bit worry about talking to people 
uh, about past events in case they ended up, um, I guess, being taken in for questioning or charged with, you know, past historical crimes. Yeah. And it, it has raised uh, a lot of questions and it has definitely changed the the uh, research environment for people like us who who would be previously uh, aren't still reliant on uh, first and primary uh, interviews in yeah. in Northern Ireland. But let's move on to that research that has come from those publications that have come from uh, from these these excellent interviews. So first of all, I want to start with your piece, Leaving Violence Behind, which you did with Burgess and Hollywood, as referred to earlier. Uh, could you just give a brief overview on what the aim of this uh, paper was and what were your key findings here? Okay, so the paper itself wanted to explore issues around disengagement and de-radicalization uh, in Northern Ireland and the experiences of loyalist paramilitaries. So we, we had interviewed people who were in the Ulster Volunteer Force, the UVF, uh, and, and Red Hand Commando, uh, and we wanted to try to understand how people made sense of uh, the disengagement, the disarmament process, um, and how we could try to understand process that perhaps helped move people towards uh, disengagement or reintegration mm-hmm. um, and what that kind of activity might be and try to see then how we could maybe learn some lessons within the context of Northern Ireland that might be useful to look at another context beyond Northern Ireland as well. And you, you're talking about here about this reintegration of loyalist paramilitaries yeah. um, and you focus on on uh, Ulster Volunteer Force and the Red Hand Commando. And at the time of recording, we can see this play out with the Red Hand Commando specifically. Um, what, what's going on there at the moment? Uh, well, at the minute, the Red Hand Commando are looking to be, have their status as a terrorist organization removed. Um, and the idea is that they can use that label, and, and I guess in, in, in a civic form, um, and that then they can use that for their activities. So at the minute, a lot of their activities that they're doing in terms of conflict transformation or community work is badged in different ways, badged by different local community groups. So I think the idea is then when they'll have this, they could kind of work freely. Um, they also the idea, I think, that they could set up their own kind of old comrades societies and you know have people come out and have their celebrations and the parades and be able to do that in a public space mm-hmm. without fear of... Um, prosecution um, and one of the things they've argued as well is that you know it, in a way if, if they can keep the name and hold the name it's, it's a way of in a way stopping potential dissident loyalists reinvigorating an organization using that title in the future mm-hmm. um, for, for violent means um, I mean my reading is that the people who are involved in this process are are very keen to move into kind of a normal demilitarized space. I mean, I think probably mm. the, the, the title of the organization, Red Hand Commando, is quite difficult to see. It's a non-militaristic way. And I'm sure for a lot of the, the victims of the violence, it must be very difficult to see how that could even be seen as in a kind of legitimate form. Mm. Um, but I think there's a, there is a kind of a move to to try to move into like an old comrade society um, and have it recognized, I guess, within their local communities that they're there. Um, and that they're moving in a kind of a, a, a move to try to engage with the local communities that they're, they're housed within. 
in terms of improving those communities and community development and things like that in the future. Yeah, and you can see a lot of the logic behind this, even the logic of keeping the name. The themes yeah. come up in your paper, in this in this paper there, the fear of a schism, the fear of a split, um, the the want to be able to um, to be recognized for community activity, non-paramilitary based community activity, but also competing against those uh, the fear of competing against those um, those groups who have no paramilitary past who are yeah. looking to do similar similar issues. Um, yeah. Did you, when you were interviewing these groups, did you see it come to this this stage where we are at today? Um, I think at the time I didn't. I think because whenever we did these interviews, I think people were not hundred percent sure where they were going. Um, they were trying to move away from the violence. They're trying to keep. The organization's coherent, I think, was one of the key drivers at the time. It was trying to keep things together. If you think the loyalism had had a lot of feuding mm. um, after the peace process, so there was a lot of issues around that. Um, there was a focus there within the organizations to tackle criminality um, that some of their members or former members were involved in. So I think the the issues at the time of 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 we were doing the research, there was a move towards this kind of civilian, civilianized organization, and there was a lot of people actively involved in a lot of community work and a lot of community projects um, in lots of different communities with, with youth, uh, former prisoners, local communities, restorative justice programs. You know, there's a lot of work taking place. Mm -hmm. So, but the idea that we would have got to the stage where they would have, um, you know, desired to, you know, have, have the organizations legal or legitimate of they would have been discussed at that time. Yeah. And do you feel that during these interviews as well, was there a sense from the loyalist communities, from these loyalist paramilitaries that in a way that their community was getting left behind by the peace process, whereas the Republicans was the, the Republican community was a, a predominant focus? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, there's, there's, Seen that not necessarily as being left behind in terms of a loyalism versus republicanism, but there's a there's a kind of a sense that their communities are being left behind in terms of just the class system. You know that the people who had who who had gained from the peace process, um, or you know the middle class communities, the communities that hadn't been blighted by violence to the same degree that they had, um, and their communities were kind of being left behind in terms of the economic opportunities, the redevelopment opportunities, and things that were going on at the time. Um, and I think that's probably still the case. That's still the feeling within those communities that have been neglected. Um, and I think there is a change now. I think one of the difference between perhaps uh, those communities today and back when I did the initial interviews is that the, 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 the community representatives have now got a lot more experience in how to build capacity. So they're having more success mm -hmm. in, in the community development than at the time they've become more professional. Um, you know, there's a lot more build a lot more relationships with other NGOs and governmental organizations, and they're in a stronger place to take the communities forward than they would have been. Mm -hmm. And you talked there about the community representation, but one of the things that it seems from the outside looking in is that they haven't had the same strength of political representation that the Republican communities would have had, that the working class Republican communities would have had uh, from Sinn Fein. Like you, you had. You had obviously David Irving being yeah. such a strong figure, and this comes up in in your paper as well. That yeah. one of the incentives to disengage was a, a transformative leadership, but one of the barriers to disengagement was also 
uh, lack of direction or leadership sure. and loyalism. So there was clearly a debate going on there. Has the like the PUP since uh, in recent years really hasn't been able to make an impact? And do you think that that's ha- having a direct impact on these communities? Then um, I think it's. I mean, I think it's an issue across unionism. Um, even beyond loyalism, yeah. it's the amount of sort of factions um, within within the groups. You know, you've got the UUP, the DUP. So there's lots of choices, and um, because you, in a way, Sinn Féin have taken the forefront in nationalist Republican politics, and you know, are leading the vote and taking the vote, you know, and winning all the seats in their community. There's, I guess, a concern within the the wider unionist community that if you're split in the vote, you're weakening the vote. Mm. So I think even when when you know, the, the vote has kind of fallen down, and, and in some respects, because the, you know, the DUP have, have gone around hoovering up the vote under kind of a fear, you know, that we're, you know, we're going to contest Sinn Féin, we're the only people who are going to contest Sinn Féin, so why vote for the PUP, why vote for the, the UUP, yeah. you know, just vote for us, we're your best bet. So I think you can see that with perhaps if you look at the UPRG and, and the UDA, you know, throwing their support behind uh, DUP candidates, and trying to sort of throw the support of their organisations behind those, and I think, I mean, you know, people joined the the UVF for multiple different reasons: so left wing politics, right wing politics, whatever. Mm. And the PUP obviously a very socialist, you know, working class particular viewpoint. So it never really got the support of the UVF in its entirety. So it could never really mobilise that support anyway. Um, and I think, obviously, in the in the the difference, one of the differences, I guess, between the Republican community and the loyalist community is loyalists could have fought the war against the IRA or had the, in, you know, in lots of different ways. They could have joined the police, the, the UDR, the British Army, etc., etc., etc. So there's always, a, you know, there are always issues about legitimacy uh, around loyalist paramilitaries um, and having, you know, done the illegal activity involved in the conflict when there was a choice, perhaps not to, for you know, for individuals. So, you know, they do have a very stigmatized uh, position uh, within the wider unionist community. Mm-hmm. So where they might get a lot of support in particular local areas, it's not universal, you know, across that as well. So, I mean, the PUP are never going to get a huge support base. So I think there's maybe some debate within the PUP about what, what the future is in terms of uh, a political organization and whether... You know, they still tend to look for seating, you know, for seats within local elections. But you know, that's that's it. You know, they look at the local community community issues, look at community politics, community capacity building, and things like that, without a really a a, a look at a kind of a, a national or a regional level in terms of political representation. Yeah, and that's these are these are themes that come out from the the research as well. That it's it's, yeah. it's very much locally uh, locally focused. Um. In this, you you put forward incentives to disengage and barriers to disengage. Just for your listeners, I just want to give the headline incentives for disengagement. You talk about life changes, finding space to think within prison, a transformative leadership, as I mentioned earlier, uh, vision for a shared future. And then the barriers to get disengagement, fear of disintegration or drift into criminality, reject, being rejected and labelled as uh, paramilitaries, uh, the compete with uh, the competing for funding and legitimacy from those uh, more uh, 
uh, those communities, those organisations who have no affiliations with paramilitary activities, legacy of the conflict, lack of direction or leadership and loyalism. And these are things that we can see um, throughout a number of different conflicts as well when yeah. we're talking about uh, disengagement. And one of the things as well that you mentioned in this paper um, is that there was the ongoing threat uh, of dissident Republican yeah. uh, violence directed towards the communities. And this was a barrier to disengagement, saying, well, if this kind of violence is going to be directed against our community, should we not maintain um, our armed structures uh, yeah. to, to be able to protect? What, do you, was this a dominant narrative or was this just a few people? Yeah, I think... I think, I mean, this is probably the legacy, and it relates a lot to the legacy of the conflict. You, know, you have people who live for 30, 40 years of violence, um, and that specter of violence, well, the violence that's produced has not gone. Mm -hmm. And we have a community that have been brought up believing that there's a military or a violent solution to political problems. Uh, we have a society that believe that there's a violent solution to local uh, community policing problems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have a kind of a culture of violence within the wider society that makes it difficult for the armed groups to leave that sphere. So at, at, a, at a macro level, uh, in terms of, you know, this Republic of Threat, the fact that you still have people who want to use violence to have to change the constitutional position of Northern Ireland, and, you know, you have to have a focus on them. But also at, at the more micro, you know, that someone in the streets, their house gets burgled. Well, you, you could go to the PSNI, but they're not going to come to do anything about it. So, um, you know, you contact someone who's in an armed group and you ask them to do something about it. Um, and sometimes in the community, put pressure on these people to also engage in, uh, in, in formal policing and that activity. So there's, there's a constant kind of sense that, you know, of, of people wanting... Um, you know, the, the use of violence is seen as it's so normalized within the within the community that it's difficult to move away from it completely, mm. um, which makes it that makes it tricky um, for for organisations moving forward and trying to say, you know, if someone comes and says, oh, someone's dealing drugs, you start to mention, well, you know, someone's dealing drugs, you go to the police, you tell the police, yeah. you know, and because people are still looking to to go back to the old ways that these problems were solved. Yeah. It's, it's a it's a case of the the case of loyalism is something that apart from the work by by people like yourself and Jim McCauley, Pete Sherlow, Aaron Edwards, Lindsay Harris, and others that it isn't as focused on within our sort of community as much, and it it does give an interesting um, an interesting case because oftentimes we're talking about paramilitary terrorist or insurgent groups who are looking for political change. But the interesting thing about uh, loyalist paramilitaries as they were looking for uh, maintenance of the status quo of the political <laughs> status quo and so therefore like you talked there about uh, earlier on about how there were a number of different options you could join the RUC you could yeah. go into politics you could join the army and so on why referring to your your research then crossing the Rubicon and I know that doesn't just concentrate on loyalism but what was it that drew people into um, into loyal into paramilitarism in Northern Ireland? Uh, I think really uh, one of the things we looked at, you know is this sort of focus I think at the minute about the media about ideology mm. you know uh, in some way you know if you look at sort of more atomic moralism on like extremism that there's some sort of ideological thing hanging that is dragging the people uh, together um, and I think 
that crossed the Rubicon paper initially was to try to deal with some of the issues I think that have been raised by by Silicon and Jack Victoroff, by Andrew Silk and Jack Victoroff, you know, about this sort of problem of secondary data, um, sort of shortcomings in the literature that, that pointed towards these sort of psychopathological personality disorders, etc. Um, so I was trying to to look at that and, and trying to understand that the factors that we could see that were getting involved. So we looked at a lot of um, you know like antecedent factors that were involved in. They're, you know, they're related a lot to things that are happening within the local community, senses of injustice, senses of perceived victimhood. Um, and certainly what some of the things we're seeing in, in, in the interviews we've done is this sort of sense that you know, people are joining these organizations not for any grand political narrative um, within the Republican or the loyalist community, but really it's a very kind of naive in that people don't have a huge amount of political thought or um, un historical understanding, um, but it's kind of almost like a very naive sectarian. It's a very sectarian, reactive uh, process that people are encountering events where they see themselves as the victim of violence from the other side. So if you're, if you join the IRA, perhaps you, you witness a brutality from the police services of the British Army. You join the the, uh, the UVF, for example. You know, there's a bomb goes off in, on the Shankill Road. Um, so it's these kind of very, this kind of action reaction violence is, is kind of a key to that. And then it sort of fills in then with a lot of issues around, I guess, the social structures and the context of the time. You know, community support for these organisations, family membership, uh, peer groups. You know, all the sort of things to find in lots of different contacts for, for people joining armed groups. Um, so, you know, I think the encounters are probably, the things we really see is, 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 you know, very, you know, normal kind of relationships and, you know, people acting differently within the abnormal context. I think one of the things, the, the key issues we, we pushed in that, as well as these kind of common antecedent factors that you see in lots of different, or in lots of different conflicts, was a lot of the things we had noticed in the interviews that people narrated a kind of a critical moment uh, or critical, a series of critical events that kind of made them have to kind of sit down and think about um, what they were going to do or how they were going to react to what's going on in the streets outside their door. So what are they going to do? You know, someone, their friend or family member has been injured or they've, they've you know, seen bomb attacks or the, you know, the community's in distress and feels under strain. And how are they going to do something about it? So they sort of sit down, have a think, um, and reflect on where they are, and have this kind of very deliberate process of decision making, where they evaluate where they are, what they can do, what they're capable of, but also what other op opportunities, what other choices do they have? You know, so that, you know if they're um, involved in education programs or they've got a secure job, you know, reflect on these things and think about well, you know. How do I move forward? How do I deal with what I'm going to do? So one of the things we noticed was, for example, people who got involved in the peaceful protest probably had, you know, were more likely to be things like to be married, the more secure job. So the way they had, they, they viewed a kind of a very long-term view to trying to solve the conflict that they would, you know, day in day out work with within peaceful methods to try to change the situation. But for a lot of the young people who joined the armed groups, the young people, the generally speaking, young men, teenage men. Um, who had very little uh, economic or uh, employment, or, or sorry, education opportunities, 
and kind of there was a lot of narrative around the community. So the community supported the activities that were taking place. There was a sense of excitement, you know, that people were coming together in groups uh, and kind of gangs. They were involved in rioting, and then from that, they're beginning to move into, um, you know, the fringes of armed groups, and then eventually getting, you know, moving through and getting involved in different activities. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, we you know, we saw that sort of situation. We were weighing these sort of things up and the sort of socialization processes that they've gone through as well. So these sort of these kind of factors colliding together. And then this kind of conscious decision making, you know, that went through. You know, it wasn't just that, oh, I, there was a bomb attack, so I reacted. There was a lot of thought going into what were you going to do, how are you going to react, and things like that. And with this precipitating event, like, say, the attack of a loved one or a bomb going off in your community, did, did you find then that with this thought process afterwards, do you feel that? the individuals were downplaying individual responsibility for engagement with the group because saying, well, because of that, I had to, or was it more taking on more individual responsibility saying, well, I had to do something about this? Yeah, I think in, in the individual narratives, there's more, there was a sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes, you know, a common narrative is, well, this was happening, so I had no choice, but obviously, you know, a very, very small minority of people engage in the conflict, even when they've had those experiences. Mm-hmm. So what we were saying was this kind of almost the state that people got into where they made those decisions. And for some of those decisions, they didn't do, you know, for some people we interviewed, um, they didn't do anything particularly. You know, they had these experiences, but didn't go on to engage in paramilitary groups. But some did. Uh, and the tendency of the ones that did tend to be younger and, I guess, didn't have the same um, opportunities that perhaps other people had. And I so, think I think that that point about opportunities is key. Like it's you can have if with the radicalization literature you could talk about uh, the development of radical ideology, but without an opportunity for engagement, um, this will just stay as that. It'll just stay as an ideology. And it, sometimes, as you said, there mightn't be any ideological commitment here at all in relation. So to I that. think I mean. <laughs> And a lot more recent interviews we've, we've done, I mean, the ideological commitment just really isn't there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, we talked about the disengagement issue, uh, the other paper, you know, I mean, it's really the imprisonment experience that that leads to that kind of engagement with the ideology or, you know, a much longer term membership of the, of the different organization that, that feeds into that. Mm-hmm. But the very, very beginning, you have people who, I mean, as, as other people have said, you have people who are doing seemingly ideological violence or terrorism or whatever you want to, to call it um, there really isn't any ideology there you know that's a weird as a viewer we perceive it in that way but the people who are conducting it are not doing it for these ideological reasons mm-hmm. and did you ever see um people joining as a result of coercion uh, well none of the people we spoke to mm. but um I think clearly, I mean, there, there, there is competition in, in certain areas between organizations for membership, and some of those members are perhaps coerced into joining as well. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm aware these processes take place, but I mean, that's one of the things we interviews. When you get people who want to, you know, it's, it's a snowball sample, and people come to talk to you. So, the people who don't want to talk to you uh, could be, you know, have different experiences. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that when I look at your work uh, with Burgess in Hollywood, one of the things that stands out to me and um, it might only be of interest to me here, but is your (laughs) use of uh, IPA, interpretive phenomenological analysis. And it's something that I've used myself in the past. Um, 
what does this give to you in your analysis of the interview that other uh, analytical techniques might? Well, I think it, it really puts, you know, you're going in without a theoretical driver mm. and you rely on people in their own words to explore their own experiences. So, you know, you begin to see the world through their perspective and understand it from their shoes in a way. Um, you know, how do they understand what's going on? Why the next sense of it? So I think it really, it's, it's given that I, you know, given kind of their, you know, a better understanding of their voice and their experiences of what's taking place. Mm. I guess that's why I like it. Yeah, and it, it sort of gives a respect to the, um, yeah, to the interviewee that they're the expert, that you're the yeah. one drawing from them, that you're not implanting any previous prior knowledge on them, on what they're saying. Yeah, I, I've always found it uh, very much worthwhile. Um, and the final piece, like linking with this issue of radicalization, it's a more recent piece, and it's a, uh, you, you broke up the band. You're no longer with Burgess and Hollywood. Here. You're, <laughs> you're with the Eve Banks for this for this paper, where you're you're looking at broad general radicalization, and you're seeing it as a comparison um, to re religious conversion motives, motifs. Um, what uh, what drew you to this? This I I find it a fascinating yeah. paper. But what drew you to this? Well, Eve Biggs was a, a PhD, well, she's, she's a senior lecturer at Liverpool Hope uh, University, but she was one of one of my PhD students. And for a PhD, she began to look at issues around the Northern Irish diaspora in England, but we, and also looking at things around identity and religiosity, mental health, and these kind of processes. And then from that, began to develop a, a wider kind of understanding of, you know, the area of the, psycholo the psychology of religion from that religion, religious conversion literature. Mm -hmm. um, I guess through discussions and, you know, reading bits and pieces of her thesis, uh, different readings and things that she would have passed my way, we began to see that the research on religious conversion was very, very similar to the research we find in terrorism studies around issues around radicalization. Uh, and in some ways, because we all know uh, there's lots of problems with the term radicalization, lots of problems with the term terrorism, etc. And there's lots of problems, and I guess the field is quite young in terms of uh, its, its research. So it offered a, a kind of an alternative uh, lens to look at this problem, because there's been a lot of work done in religious conversion for a very long time. The psychology of religion is one of the earliest aspects of psychology. So there's a lot more work in that field. There's a lot more thought, a lot more theory has been developed over time to try to understand these processes of religious conversion. So we had a look at those and began to see that, you know, the very similar experiences, you know, the, the religious conversion really resonated with the study of radicalization. You have both of these sort of multidimensional transformative processes where you have a person who has a particular way of life, you know, a particular belief system, particular practices and a lifestyle, and then leave that behind and move into a new belief system, uh, a new lifestyle, a new way of doing things, a new way of seeing the world, a new way of life. So. When we look at the research as well, they both involve very similar processes. You know, the reasons for why people convert religiously and the reason why perhaps people get themselves involved in armed groups, you find there's a lot of similar kind of contextual considerations. You, the things that influence people are people. So you need your peer groups, your family, uh, things like that, uh, places, the contacts, events, ideology, institutions experiences that you have, expectations, even things like trauma experiences. 
so there was a, very, a lot of the uh, a lot of the context and the factors that might push people in, in towards conversion were very similar to the the, uh, the sort of factors that might push people towards engagement with armed groups or radicalization. So we kind of felt that there was this, you know, the, the conversion with teach research really echoed with the, the factors we'd seen, the antecedent factors we'd seen, we look at people's roots into violent extremism, um, very, very similar. So that's what really, why we, why we decided to take that lens, John. And it's you, similar to, to the previous paper, you're talking about critical incidents there, you're talking about yeah. personal significance. Um, and the, you, you put forward six different motifs here. You talk about the intellectual conversion, the mystical conversion, the experimental conversion, affectional or interpersonal conversion, revivalist and coercive. Are there any of those uh, six different types that you see as most resonant, or do you find each of them are resonant? I think, I mean, one of the things that the, the research in religious conversion teaches as well is that no one has a singular path. You know, people mix those, those motifs. So if you think of, like, first when you mentioned the, inter, the intellectual conversion, I mean, it's really a kind of a self-radicalization. Uh, so it's really about that process of you engaging with literature or as we would now have, you know, YouTube or messages on the internet. Um, it's about you engaging with those and self-radicalizing yourself. So you do it in a kind of almost isolation. And then obviously from that isolation, you meet people who are involved in those groups and you move towards that. So I thought it was very similar. In the same way we have that mystical conversion, which is that kind of Pauline, you know, Saul on the road to Damascus uh, conversion, which resonated again with this kind of critical incident factors that we'd seen in Northern Ireland, that people have an event, and the event really makes them reconsider where they are in the world and think, right, okay, I can't live like this anymore, I can't live in this society with these things happening to my community, I'm going to have to do something. Mm. So we found a lot of, a lot of similarity. Um, the experimental conversion, you know, the idea that, you know, you'll try on bits, you know, you'll take bits and pieces from the organization, do bits and pieces, and then move forward and things like that. So we, we find a lot of resonance, and particularly what we felt was that if you look at the world, the, the work around Bill, um, where he kind of tries to break it down into almost steps, the, how these conversion processes build on each other, um, we felt that the, those kind of models that we ha that were already there in the psychology religion around religious conversion could quite easily um, be taken and mixed with some of the models that we now have on radicalization and could you know make them a little bit more sophisticated that you know they could. They would kind of sing to some of those those models we have. You have these sort of starkest models and things like that, John. Okay, so I'd say, you know, if you look at the radicalization, one of the things we've had now is a development of different models to try to understand the radicalization process. And we felt that these kind of motifs on conversion motifs and models of conversion um, could be incorporated with some of these current models of radicalization to provide, I guess, a more sophisticated model. Um, and a, and a, maybe a more nuanced way of looking at the complexity of the issues that is involved as people make that kind of conversion into, uh, into or you know, conversion into joining an armed group or getting involved uh, in terrorist organisation or in getting involved in terrorism. Yeah, and if you look at Rambo's 1993 model, and if I just read out each of the stages, it goes context, crisis, quest, encounter, interaction, commitment, and consequences. If I didn't tell tell listeners that that was an um, integrative model of conversion for uh to religion you could feasibly put that forward as a as 
as a radicalization model as well. And it just shows us that like we should be drawing on this literature. As you say, the psychology of religion is has been researched for such a long time, much longer than the psychology of terrorism and much more in depth. That it's there we should be able to draw on it like this. And how do you feel that this could be uh, or do you feel that this could be applicable then when we look from a if practitioners are looking at it. Um, yeah, I think I think for protection practitioners, I think particularly issues around like something like the Rambo's model where you have the progression. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're thinking about interventions um, at different stages uh, as someone gets closer and closer to engagement in political violence, you know, you could use those kind of models to try to uh, focus your interventions. You know, what kind of intervention do you need at that kind of quest? You know, at the beginning, and what kind of interventions? You know, once you've somebody is actually engaged with the group, how do you intervene then? So it gives you an idea of having a range of interventions to to use at different points of that process mm-hmm. of uh, engagement with armed groups or radicalization. And and being very personal in in picking who or what is the right uh, intervener as well, because it's. It, with those, the importance of relationships throughout this process as well, if you've got someone who, no matter what the in- intervention is, if you pick the wrong uh, vehicle for this intervention, the wrong person to be, or organization to be involved in it, it could ha- backfire. Oh yeah, definitely, John. Yeah. yeah. So like, that's, that's the research that you've highlighted there, and it's some really interesting research. As I say in all uh, episodes, anyone who wants to engage with this research further, read it further. If you go to our, our website, uel.ac.uk slash TERC, and go to the Talking Terror section, on Neil's uh, profile there, you'll get links to all of the research that was mentioned today, both his research and the research that inspired him as well. But I know that that you have to head off uh, in a few minutes. But before you go, I just wanted to get your sense. How do you feel that the how do you feel the health of uh, terrorism studies is at the moment, and where do you see it moving forward? Uh, I mean, that's a good question, John. Isn't it? I think. I mean, will we still have the same problems? <laughs> we still be looking at the same problems we're looking at today in ten years' time. <laughs> um, I think we probably will. I think because we're kind of the contacts itself develops. I mean, the, the, the groups on the outside that are c- involved in the terrorism change. Mm-hmm. So you, you're always going to be playing catch-up uh, in terms of that. I think there's a lot of lessons still to be learned by looking at groups from the past or groups that have moved through these cycles of uh, you know, engagement of violence and then disengagement of violence to learn things that might help pull people away from the engagement of violence. I think it's, there's still work to be done there. Um, I think the problem we have is it's an area that tends to attract people for a short period of time, um, so it, it kind of hinders hinders some theoretical development. Um, and I guess it's just the, the, the nature of the area, the complexity, the multifaceted nature. You know, you need you need people to be trained to respond to the difficulties from lots of different disciplinary perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's always that tension between the researcher and the practitioner, and that you know, practitioner wants a solution, and the researcher pretty telling them that there, you know, <laughs> there is no one solution. You know, yeah. it's too complex, it's too difficult to, to pinpoint. You know, there's no silver bullet to it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, um, I think the research is developing. I think the research is getting better. I think people have a much more nuanced 
uh, understanding of of the of what's going on in the process that are involved. Certainly, a lot more developed than it was 15 years ago. I think no doubt about that. And I think over time, as people use different research methodologies, the research methodologies become more complex. Um, you know, we, we we should see. I'm not saying we're going to get a solution, but I think we're going to understand the problem a lot better. Mm-hmm. And so that's the future of terrorism research. How about the future for Neil Ferguson's research? Where are you going next? Um, well, I think at the minute we, we I'm looking to work about looking at people involved, I guess, and trying to build the peace. So how do we get looking at sort of people who are engaged in or have been engaged in political violence, moving into gas, conflict transformation work, um, <coughs> trying to understand how that work works, what you know, and, and what can be can be drivers that can can push, not push, but can guide people to make that change and to get involved in uh, in helping their communities and um, by doing positive activity rather than using violence. So I think that's where I'm looking to go. But also looking at um, I think issues around going backwards maybe in a way, John, to look at how how do we look at the issues about that kind of intergenerational transfer, you know, why are people still get very strong identities, still showing support for these organizations. Even in somewhere like Northern Ireland, where we had a peace process, what, nearly 20 years ago for the sign of agreement? So, you know, why are people still very hung up and have these strong identities and strong partisan viewpoints, and how can we kind of understand how that's happening a little bit better? Uh, and is there anything then we can intervene to mediate that? Yeah. No, it's it's interesting and important research to do it, neil thanks so much for for your time today um thanks for and thank you to jamie murray for editing today's podcast uh, he's got a few dropping of the skype connection to edit out but i'm sure he'll he'll master that as well and uh, as always uh, be sure to follow us on twitter at t-e-r-c-u-e-l and tweet us with the hashtag talking terror N- join me next week for um my interview with dr jeffrey muir from University of St. Andrews. A fascinating uh, conversation to be had with Geoffrey there about his research and the research that inspired him. So until next week, have a good week. Bye.